Let me ask you a question as we end our series on the cross, on the cross, because Christianity, so much of it is an event, the event of the cross. Um, When was the first time you remember having an enemy? You may have to go back a ways, maybe grade school. Do you remember having an enemy? An enemy. Don't look around because (laughs) we don't have enemies. Everybody loves everyone here. I know they do. Well, let's go to Philippians 3, and let's learn about enemies of the cross, about life, ourselves. Let's learn something new from the Word of God. Philippians 3, 17. It's a little text, 17, 17 through 20. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross. Hmm. Enemies of the cross whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. But not us, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Short little passage there, so much in there, and he puts such a strong word, enemies of the cross. What does this look like? What is he saying? And before he gets enemies of the cross, he says some very important things. So let's look at this. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. Join in, be a part of, follow me, he said in a, in a different part of the Bible, as I follow Christ. That's very inclusive, right? That's very, we all do this together. We all serve Christ together. We live life together. We go on and from glory to glory and maturity, we uh, pick up our cross and follow it daily. Join in, join in following my example. Well, I think about that. I think, well, Paul, I mean, who can follow his example? I mean, he wrote like one third books of the New Testament. That's that's a big example. No, it's not. Jesus did it all. We just follow him. Paul wasn't setting the bar so high up here that no one could attain it. He was saying, get to the cross and just do what I've done. I've made every mistake in the world. I've messed up. I persecuted the church. Just follow Christ to the cross and he'll keep you there and just stay right behind his steps on the cross. It seems so big that we can't obtain it. If he said to do it, we can obtain it, right? He wasn't a leader nor a good, uh, any good leader who would say, do, do this, but you're not able to do it. He's saying God's going to empower you. The Holy Spirit's going to do it. You follow me and be the example, the, the, the world-changing kind of a person that he was. You may not change as, as have such a huge influence in the world, but everyone will have influence. It's statistically proven that the, the person with the most quiet, introverted personality, I mean just super quiet, they will influence 10,000 people in their life. The most introverted person will influence 10,000 people in their lifetime. So we have to get the mindset that Paul had. And anything else, I love you, it's unbiblical. And we're getting rid of that. 
We don't want any of that. We want to say, number one on your notes, the, call, the cross calls us to be examples of maturity. I am going to maturity in Christ. Mature is good, right? You don't like to hang around with the immature. You don't like to eat bananas that are not ripe, mature, right? Maturity is good. You know, I was thinking about this first point, even in worship, I was thinking, you know, I was kind of behind on everything in life. I didn't get my, you know, those 12-year molders, molars, excuse me, 12-year molars in your teeth. <laughs> That's why I'm not a dentist. <laughs> I didn't get those till I was almost 16 years old. That's all right, I got them. I didn't start college until I was 22. I was a freshman going in. Everyone was headed out. It's all right. I finished. I didn't start in full-time ministry, full-time until I was 28. It's all right. I'm still going strong. I want to tell you something. Paul said, follow me. You stay with Christ. You stay with me. I will bring, Christ will bring you to maturity. Don't worry about if you've lagged or you messed up. I've done it all. You stay with him and you'll look back and go, oh, look what God has done. Amen? So you look at yourself and say, I'm not immature. I'm, I may not be where I want to be, but God is bringing me there. Doesn't matter when you started late or what family you did or didn't have or what education you do or don't have, you have Christ. Is Christ yours? That's what Paul said, right? I have Christ. Everything else I count as rubbish. All right. The cross calls us to be examples of maturity. So I just say, okay, Lord, I'll take my 15 uh, and three-quarter year molars, and I'm going to be mature. You're going to bring me to the place of maturity and influence. Look at Ephesians 4, a very popular text. Look at it in, the, in this context. Ephesians 4.11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. That means completely mature. A perfect man. Let me tell you why you start thinking maturity. Because one day this corruptible that you have will put on incorruptibility. And this mortal will put on immortality. And he'll change you. He's already called you mature. In fact, he's called you sinless and perfect by the blood of the lamb. He's called you righteous. Is that maturity? So we don't speak anything contrary to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Whoo, I'm liking this already. This is better than a, uh, some kind of encouragement speech. This is true. That you should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man in the cunning and craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may what? What does that say? Grow up in all things unto him who is the head. Come on, you start thinking, you start acting, maturity. You start speaking it to your spouse, to your children. Oh, that's a big step of faith right there. 
Come on, you look at those children and you just speak life over them. You speak maturity. Paul said, join in with my example of maturity. You guys ever get scolded for not being mature when you should be? Well, I got scolded a few weeks ago. You all know my grandmother went to be with the Lord, but just a few days before she went to be with the Lord, she ripped into me. Oh, my goodness. I saw her a few days before she was, um, she passed, and, and she was a believer for the last decade of her life, strong. And um, so she said, how are you doing? How are the kids? I said, it's good. It's just really hard, you know. Um, this fifth child is trying to, you know, get Megan through this pregnancy and all the other kids and everything. And, like, she was one of 13 children. I said, Mima, I, I just, I don't know how y'all did it. I don't understand. She looks at me. She goes, what's wrong with you? We trusted the Lord. What's wrong? <laughs> Listen, you don't bring immaturity to me, Ma. What's wrong with you? Trusted the Lord. Yes, ma'am, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I was not being an example of maturity, and she wanted to lovingly let me know that's not the way it functions. It's not the way it works. And Paul is saying, brethren, all of you, all Christ followers, I don't care if you're in Philippi, I don't care if you're a Jew, a Gentile of this or that or whatever, join with me. Because we're going through the cross, we're going from glory to glory, we're going from corruptible to incorruptibility. Is that our final end? Then we don't speak contrary to what Jesus has done. Amen? All right. Let's keep looking at this. Brethren, join with me. Join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. We all meet lots of people in life. We all have lots of seasons of, you know, uh, churches or social groups or everything else, you know, college, wherever you are. Paul says, I want you to do something. I want you to mark the people that have gone to maturity, that are serving the Lord, and you can follow that example and that pattern. You let those people speak into your life, and you be influenced by them. Mark those people. Hang around those people. Get with those people. That's the ones you need to pattern to cut out your life like. Those people. And I'm on the funerals today. A few months ago, Francis Martin died. And uh, it was, the funeral had a strong effect on my life because it was the best event I'd ever gone to where the Lord didn't speak to me something specific. And it was just kind of a, man, it really rocked my boat in a good way. It was just a powerful service watching um, the end result of a man who served the Lord for years. Put this picture up. Francis Martin was my first pastor, the first person I ever remember as an adult as a young adult that pastored me and that got in my soup and loved me and had a pure heart. And he wasn't a perfect man, a perfect man, that's Jesus. But he was a, a great pastor, and he died this year in January, and I went to the funeral. It was like two hours long. And obviously I identify with him a lot because he was a pastor for many years. So his wife, Babs, tells the story that uh, just a few days, I believe, before he died, it may have even been the day of, he woke up that morning and was very upset. Now, you have to know the last several years of Francis's life, 
One, over a decade ago, he had like multiple bypass surgery. So physically, he was extremely weak and uh, he just wasn't, you know, 100%. And to compound that, for several years, he had dementia uh, or Alzheimer's, one of those. So mentally, he was very diminished in his capacity, physically and mentally. I have a point of saying all this. So he wakes up one morning and he's coming down the hall yelling, call the church, call the board elders. There's a woman in my bed. Don't know who it is. You see, years ago, his wife's telling this story now. They've been married for whatever, 50 years. She's gray-headed now. But when they were younger, she was red-headed. And when he woke up in his diminished mental state, he didn't, know, he didn't recognize her. And so he's all upset that he has committed adultery in his mind. Now, she said, Francis, no, 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 no. We're, you're in your 80s now. It was me. But I'm going to tell you, a man physically diminished, mentally handicapped, still had the integrity, had the vulnerability, come on, to say, I am open book. I am going to serve the Lord. I have accountability. The man couldn't even remember where he was or what time in history it was. But he said, call the elders of the church. I'm going to get on my knees before then I messed up. Now that'll speak. I'm going to tell you, you preach even when you don't give a sermon. He never gave a sermon after that event. He died very shortly after. But that spoke volumes to me. In his worst physical and mental condition of his life. Number two on your notes. Allow godly influences in your life. He let them in. Call the elders. Call the board. All right, that was heavy. We're going to loosen it up. All right, that was, that was, that was, I mean, that, you have to almost get the tissue out. Okay, loosen it up. In 2 Kings 22, there's a great story, and it's uh, a wonderful Old Testament character that I love, Josiah. The reason I love Josiah in the Old Testament is because he became king at eight years old. He didn't want to be, I didn't even know what that meant probably at eight, but his father Amon was not a godly man. In fact, his father was so wicked, he was killed at 32 years old by his own people. It was prophesied that he would be. And he was fatherless at eight. And he was raised most of his life by the priests. But the way it starts out his life and the proclamation, if you read his whole life, it's a beautiful story. He's a Christ-type figure, if you read his, his life in the story, Josiah. I just want to read 2 Kings uh, 22, 1 and 2 to you. Let's look at this. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Long, successful ministry. Long, successful. His mother's name was Jadida, the daughter of Adia of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of who? David wasn't his father? David was his great-great-grandfather. He had a horrible family life. 
It was a horrible mess. Even by today's standards, it was worse than today's standards. He would have his own 60-minute special. And walked in all the ways of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. I'm going to tell you what he did. He looked and he said, I don't have any godly examples in front of me. But I'm going to find them and allow them to speak into my life. I don't have a pattern like Paul said, but I'm going to find one. And I'm going to follow my life according to that. And he modeled his life after King David who he never met face-to-face. Come on. I've never met Paul face-to-face, but he influences my life. I will meet my Savior face-to-face one day. He has changed my life. I've got a pattern to follow. You do too. Amen? If Josiah can do it in the mess he grew up in, we can too. Allow those godly influences in your life tell you, who's in here under 30? You don't have to raise your hand. If you're under 30, and now listen to me, I love you. According to the scripture we read before in Ephesians 4, you cannot have maturity disconnected from church and ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15 is what? And he gave some to be pastors, apostles, the fivefold ministry to grow up and mature. The world, even Christians, will tell you, you don't need the church, just love Jesus and nothing else matters. That's contrary to what Ephesians 4 tells me. That's contrary to what Josiah did. Amen? So I want to tell you, get in the Word and let the Word make the decisions for you in your life. All right. Ooh, I did a daddy thing. You know, I'm a dad all the time. My kids aren't here. I'm like, I got to dad somebody. All right. Let's keep looking. I'm going to be a great old man. I just realized. You know what you need to do? (laughs) Verse 18, right here in Philippians 4. I'm sorry, Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often... That means there's going to be a lot of issues in the world. There's going to be people who disagree. There's going to be people who are hypocrites. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. We serve Jesus. Who have told you often and now tell you very important words from Paul. Tell you even weeping. Even weeping. And tell and now tell you even weeping. This is very interesting words from Paul. I remember reading when he was shipwrecked. There's no crying there. In fact, all those burly sailors were crying out for their life. And he goes, look, I already know. For he had to console them. Can you imagine a 250-pound sailor crying on your shoulder because they're going to die? <laughs> he said, look, I know there's going to be no loss of life here. When he was getting ready to be shipwrecked, when the waves were tossing to and fro, going all crazy, they just lost the ship. He didn't cry then. You know, then they got, he got marooned on an island of Malta. And the natives come around helping those poor guys. They must have been in bad shape. And they build a fire. And he sticks his hand to get the wood, and a snake bites them. They're all freaking out. He's not, he didn't cry there. He was stoned twice. There's no record of him crying in this. He was beaten. He was rejected by his countrymen. In fact, if you read 2 
Timothy, when he's just hours before his beheading, he looks at Timothy and he says, you preach the word. My departure is at hand. There's no tears there. But right here, he's crying. Hmm. That struck me very hardly. That right here, he's broken hearted thinking about the lost, thinking about enemies of the cross, thinking about people who oppose him. This is where he cries? This is not where you're supposed to cry. This is where you tell them why they're wrong. And we do that. We proclaim Christ in love. But right here, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you weeping. What a broken-hearted man. And we know Paul's no sissy. And he's weeping. Let me tell you about brokenheartedness. There is a place for it. In fact, Ecclesiastes says what? There's a time to laugh and a time to cry. Right? Time to weep, time to mourn. Paul knew when to be brokenhearted. And he knew when not to be. He was brokenhearted when he looked at the lost, when he looked at the enemies of the cross, when he looked at people who are walking around who have no eyes to see and no ears to hear, when he looked at agitators and adversaries. That's Jesus stuff, right? So I got to remember when I'm dealing with people I don't like or my kids who are having a bad attitude or whatever is going on in life, and you deal with it every day too. Anger? He's weeping over enemies. Number three on your notes. Brokenheartedness is often a Christ-like reaction. That's a large hyphenated word. That's a new record right there, I'm going to tell you, for an underline. I believe this is a highly holy, broken, godly example. Amen? This is our reaction when we have great maturity. This is our reaction when we have patterned our life after men and women of God. This is our reaction. I wish this was my reaction all the time. It is sometimes, not all the time. As y'all know, uh, a few weeks ago, um, you know, we made a, a bid for All Cities Church that we didn't get. And I'm going to tell you, I fleshed out on that one. There's, I've told some of you this already. I'm going to tell the whole church. I did not handle that well. I got aggravated. I got frustrated. I got downright mad. The last feeling in my heart, in my mind and emotions, was brokenheartedness. I just straight fleshed it out. And then I read this text and it came back to me. <gasps> That's why I reacted like that. There was a maturity issue in me. There was a pattern that I was following that was not Christ, and that's why I got so aggravated. And I broke the rule. What in the world? Pastor's losing it. He's got spoons from Yogurt Land. <laughs> so we've had this spoon about five years. This is a deal that I made with my wife. So when we started the church five years ago, 
it was, I'm sorry, when we moved here five years ago, we started the church four years ago, it was a lot harder than we thought it would be. Thought it would be so easy and everyone would just, you know, come and everything would be easy. And, you know, Chris and Sichelle were here and they're working with us and they're wonderful. And it was hard for them too. And oh my goodness. And this is like hard. So when it's hard, you get grumpy and you start saying things. Uh, the, it, the reason why it's hard is it's their fault or this or that or that or whatever. So my attitude got negative toward people sometimes. So me and my wife on our rare dates are out at Yogurland eating, and <laughs> you need to let people speak in your life. Men, this is the hardest for us because we, are, we have egos, and they're very touchy. We have you know, these dents in our armor, and we don't want people to talk about them or you know, acknowledge them. So Megan says, you know, you've been really negative um, a lot lately, and even about people. I said, no, no, woman, thou art deceived. But my wife is discerning. She really is. And she's submitted to me fully, and it's wonderful. But also, we practice mutual submission. That's biblical. And in areas of discernment or in areas of any purity or whatever, she has full right in my life. And this, she goes, you know what? We need to make a deal. And she took this spoon, and she said, anytime you're speaking negatively about people, I'm going to take out this spoon, and I'm going to just do this, and then I'm going to put it back. I know that's childish, but I need it sometimes. Not all the time, just sometimes. So the spoon came out a few weeks ago. Said, you're not brokenhearted. You're mad three ways. And I saw the spoon, and I remembered, oh, I hate yogurt. Give me some dang ice cream. <laughs> it's true. That has nothing to do with it, but I just want ice cream. Brokenheartedness should be our often reaction. Our often reaction. It was our Savior's. Look at Luke 19.41. It was what he did. Then of his ministry, he's coming into Jerusalem for the last time. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and what? Wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. Oh, I'm here, the Prince of Peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. This is what bitterness and unforgiveness and a lack of broken hearts will do to you. This is what it does. And level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will leave you, and excuse me, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. If he was often brokenhearted, we need to be also. Now, that's not depression, that's not living in a state of anxiety. Brokenness is so important. It's a, it's, a, it's a staple, a cornerstone of Christianity. What did Jesus say? The stone is here. There's two things that are going to happen. You're going to fall on it and be broken, or it's going to crush you to powder. And I fall on it, and it breaks me in the right and good way. The picture there is a mason who takes a stone to break it to use it for something. The picture of, of the stone that's crushing it to powder 
That's just to get rid of dross, to get rid of junk. That's what the word says, right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and you're going to fall on it, and it's going to break you, or it'll crush you to powder. And so us, we are brokenhearted, which is a Christ-like reaction. Let's keep looking here. He goes to the next very heavy statement, Philippians 3. And now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross. This is verse 18, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ why was he brokenhearted at enemies of the cross of Christ? Because of the next few words. He was brokenhearted because he knew their end was destruction. The cross, which brings us Savior, which brings us salvation, is the most destructive force on this planet. It divides everything between saved and lost between his and not his. Is that correct? So therefore, if we have the cross, sin is destroyed in our life and we're called righteous. If we have not the cross, the wrath of God is against us and we will end in destruction. Is that not correct? That's what it says. So he was brokenhearted because, oh no, if you're an enemy of the cross, your end is destruction. And it broke him to tears. We need to understand the cross Brings absolute destruction. Oh, get on the side of grace. Oh, come to the Savior, to the cross and say, Oh, my sins are many, but forgive me, God. Come to the cross and that your, your fallen nature, that sin-filled heart, let Him remove it. And the destroyer will not touch you. But on the other side, destruction comes for those who are enemies of the cross. Number four in your notes. The cross produces absolute, absolute destruction. One way or the other. That's a heavy thought and statement. But to quantify it, remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. So let me read this to illustrate the statement that the cross brings absolute destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1 Three through nine. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of one another of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with what? That's why Paul cried. That's why he wept. 
everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The cross produces absolutely. It will save to the uttermost. That's what the King James says, right? To the uttermost or it will bring destruction absolutely to the uttermost. All right, let's look at one more here. The last thing in verse 19. Verse 19. They are the enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. That scripture has a lot of want in it, doesn't it? Their God is their belly. Okay, now I can identify. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm hungry like every day. Every day. I can eat a huge breakfast, and then by the evening, I want more. I want something. I want some need. I want something to drink. The statement of Paul is these people are never satisfied. They never have peace. They never know contentment. It escapes them. Oh, what a horrible life. Oh, think this is the life apart from the cross and as an enemy of the cross whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame. Whatever they puff themselves up about, whether they worship their bodies and they you know, live their life to look good or whatever it is, whose mind is set on earthly things or they're consumed with the God of this world of money or the consumer popularity or whatever it is. But it's just this gnawing lack of contentment. That is totally contrary to everything Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Right? Let me tell you about the world. Number five on your notes. Constant need and lack reflects a life without the cross. It's constant. Ugh. I enjoy food. It sustains and fills my physical body. But if I had nothing for my soul, for my mind, my emotions, oh, what a miserable life it would be. I would never have peace. I would never sleep well. And look, we all have bad days, right? But in the worst storm and no matter what's going on, I have him the King of glory, my Savior, my everything, my all. He will never leave me nor forsake me. And he perfects those things that concern me. Oh, yes, and he has begun a good work, and he'll complete it. And I am content, and I am at peace. Amen? That's what the world doesn't have. That's what a life apart from the cross is. Let's stand up. One last scripture here. Let the words of King David encourage you and me. Psalm 34, 8. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. The word also is translated happy. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is what? No want to those who fear him, who respect and reverence him. Oh, the young lions lack. I mean the biggest, strongest, best looking, most talented, they lack. And suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord, they shall not lack any good thing. Come on. That's the cross. That's what you are saved by. That's what we're reflecting about this day. Let's come to Jesus. Let's come to that cross that has not lost its power. It is the same healing, saving, delivering instrument that it was, has always been and will always be.
As we close in the scripture, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him or offered him up freely to us, how now he not also with him give us all things? The all things is connected to the cross. It is at the cross that you'll find the, the pers- right perspective and brokenheartedness, that, you'll bring, that he'll bring you to maturity. Amen. It is at the cross that all these things happen. Let's come to it as a group today as we close. Let's all come to the cross. Come on. Let's come. Thank you, Jesus. You can lift your hands or sit. Do whatever you need to do. Father, we come to you, Lord Jesus. We come to the cross of Jesus Christ where our, pe- our sin was paid. The penalty where rejection ends, where doubt is quenched, Lord, where fear falls off of us. It's at the foot of the cross, Lord, where a hard heart is changed, where that heart of stone is made a heart of flesh, Lord, where our sin was as red as crimson, you make it as white as snow, Lord. It's at the cross. So everything we're dealing with, we lay there as we did the first day we met you. Lord, we lay it at your feet right now. And freedom is coming in the name of Jesus to you. We lay every burden, every issue, every problem, every weakness, every uh, thing we don't know about or how this is going to happen in life. We lay it at your feet right now. And we experience the freedom that only comes in the cross of Jesus Christ. We experience contentment that comes in a relationship with Jesus, our Savior, right now. We just receive it by the Holy Spirit. We receive it because we trust you. We receive it because we've already encountered you so many times. We would never leave the lover of our soul. It's ours. We receive it by faith in you. By our experience we've already had with you. In the strong, mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen and amen. Now praise him for the cross. Come on. God bless you. Have a great, great day.